I took a class on culture, thinking it was going to be about Japanese culture. And I show up the first day and he says it's going to be about American culture. And he gave me a piece of advice that stuck with me. He said, if you really want to learn about other cultures, you have to learn about your own culture first. That's when I realized that for the previous four years in Japan, I had been unconsciously projecting my own values with good intentions onto the Japanese. What it does is it makes you more mindful, not only of Japanese culture, but of people from any culture that you meet. And it helps you not assume unconsciously. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Liddy Buchelman. My main goal here is to create an easily accessible resource for those who want to develop Japan-specific communication skills, especially in business. While I don't promise to make you fluent in Japanese, I hope that you will walk away from each episode with a skill, piece of information, or shift in mindset that will help you be more effective in your interactions with Japanese business people. Just a quick reminder to please rate and review the podcast if you enjoy it. It goes a long way to helping others find the podcast and learn more, and it helps me to keep going as an independent creator. So thanks in advance. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Tim Sullivan, a bilingual cross-cultural educator who connects people through storytelling by using a combination of monologue and interactive exercises. He is now semi-retired with decades of experience working in Japan and offering training in cross-cultural communication and Japanese manufacturing management techniques to a laundry list of international companies. But he'll tell us much more about his history and experiences once we get into the conversation, so be sure to stay tuned. Before that, let's go over a little bit of Japanese. In the previous episode, we learned a word used to describe a relatively common practice in Japanese companies. Tanshinfunin. Ta, n, shi, n, fu, ni, n. Tanshinfunin. Tanshinfunin refers to the common practice at Japanese companies of sending employees to other locations to work for a while. This could be across Japan or even the world for months or years at a time, often without their families. If you're curious and want to learn more, be sure to listen to Michael Thurston Howard's interview two episodes ago to learn a little bit more about this practice. In this week's episode, I want to teach you a term that's pretty foundational to today's conversation. Hansei. Ha. N. Se. I. Hansei. Hansei has a few possible definitions including reflection, contemplation, regret, or even repentance. In today's conversation, Tim mostly focuses on Hansei Kai, which would roughly be the equivalent of in postmortem in English. If you check out the kanji in the description of the episode, you'll see that this word is created by adding the word Hansei to the Chinese character Kai, which generally refers to some sort of meeting or gathering. This structure is pretty common in other Japanese words as well, such as nomikai, which is a drinking meeting or drinking party, and sobetsukai, which is a farewell party. A hansei-kai, then, is a common type of meeting at Japanese companies where employees gather together to reflect on what went wrong during the previous event or project, or what could be improved in the future. What distinguishes this from the American idea of a post-mortem is that this practice is carried out no matter how successfully the topic being discussed went. But Tim will go on to explain what this means in Japanese business culture later on in the episode. For now, let's get straight into today's conversation. Well, I was born and raised in Chicago. I was what they used to call a troubled youth. <laughs> and I, uh, I dropped out of high school when I was in my junior year. I was 17. Uh, I didn't like my father's discipline. Go figure, right? So uh, I, I drop out and I was kind of going nowhere. So uh, I decided to join the Navy. I, I, so I didn't like my dad's discipline. So I showed him I joined the Navy, right? No and, discipline uh, there. Yeah, no, out of, the, out of the frying pan, right? Into the fire. And uh, I was pretty good with languages, you know, and when you join the service, they give you all these tests and kind of determine where your talents lie. And they said, okay, well, you have a knack for languages. And this was 1975. So the, we're in the middle of the Cold War. 
So uh, they decided, oh, well, you're going to study Russian. So they sent, and by the way, I don't speak Russian anymore, but so they sent me to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California. So again, I have no diploma yet, right? I'm a dropout. And uh, they send, sent me through this intensive 37-week course on Russian. And of course, they don't teach you conversational Russian. They teach you how to eavesdrop, you know. So I never learned, you know, how to say pass the salt, uh, but I learned how to say the missile destroyed the tank, you know, that kind of thing, right? So I, I, I was there for 37, well, actually, it turned out to be a, a year in Monterey. And then I, they sent me to cryptology school in Texas. And uh, when you're in the service, uh, specifically in the Navy, they have what they call a dream sheet. And what they do is after you graduate from whatever school they send you to, they give you a sheet with a list of all the possible destinations where you can be stationed. And they call it a dream sheet because that's all it is. It's just your dream, right? And uh, so all the, uh, the instructors at our school told us, no matter what you put on your dream sheet, you are going to Misawa, Japan. So if you want your first choice on your dream sheet, put Misawa, Japan, and you'll get, that's where, because that's where you're going. So my buddy and I went down to fill out our dream sheet and we were young rebels and we wanted to put anything but Misawa, Japan. So my first choice was Rhoda, Spain. My second choice was Etzel, Scotland. And we had no idea what our third choice was. So we're looking, it's like a menu of possible places to go, right? And so we stumble across this Atsugi in, in Kanagawa Prefecture. So we go, well, what the hell? Let's put Atsugi, anything but Misawa. So we put Atsugi as our third choice. My buddy and I were the only ones sent to Atsugi. Everybody else went to Misawa, Japan. So it was one of those mindless you know, decisions in life that completely changes the course of your life. And you don't realize at the time how important that decision was, right? So my buddy and I, we get stationed at Atsugi and it was, you know, the last two and a half years of our enlistment. You know, we show up and, you know, we get all, we're getting all this kind of negative input from the people we're working with. They're saying, ah, oh, you know, the Japanese, they don't like Americans and you know, my friend and I wanted to move off base. Oh, don't move off base. You won't like it. And we, of course, we did the opposite. And we said, well, we're moved off base. And we made friends right away. And I fell in love with the country. And as I started to make friends, it motivated me to start learning Japanese. And I went to class on base. They have, uh, you know, Maryland University on all bases around the world. And there were like four Japanese classes. So I took all four. And uh, my goal was to get fluent before I got out of the Navy. Well, two and a half years it went by really quickly and I wasn't fluent. I, I knew how to say, you know, the basics, you know, uh, how much is the beer? Where do I buy the ticket? But I couldn't carry on a conversation. So I, I decided to stay there. And so I got out in Japan and I went to Waseda University uh, for a year. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. You know, back to your question, you know, who am I? I'm, you know, I, I married a Japanese woman. I have two, uh, two sons, one who lives in Tokyo, the other lives in New York. I now have a granddaughter, so I'm a doting grandfather. And again, I've been married 37 years. I'm now a resident of, of Atami, where my, that's my wife's hometown. And uh, uh, I consider myself, I guess, an ambassador, you know, I feel like uh I'm here not to complain or, 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 you know, look at Japan's weaknesses because all places have them, um, but more to, I don't know, change hearts and minds, you know, to, to make friends with the locals and humanize myself and all the other gaijin that many of them have never met before. Um, so I, I, I don't know if that answers the question, but that's kind of my journey uh, to, and how I got here. Thanks for that great answer. It seems like a very good introduction to what we we're going to talk about today. Okay. But um, I just wanted to ask, why do you think people on the base you were at got the impression or had the 
stereotype that Japanese people don't like Americans? That's a good question. I'm not sure I know the answer, but probably part of it is a lot of them never really ventured off base and, and really discovered Japan. And, you know, a lot, I knew people who were there for three years and they never left base. Maybe they were afraid, maybe they weren't interested, but on base, you kind of have this little mini America, you know, you have everything you need. You don't really need to go off base to live. Right. Um, I think some of it is any base around the world. You tend to have young Americans who are like me. I was clueless who have no idea about the culture they're going into. They've had no very little training. Uh, young people don't always behave properly. And so, you know, a lot of the bars around the base, you know, they'll say no gaijin, no, no foreigners allowed. And some people um, interpret that as, you know, racism. I saw it more as they had bad experiences with young, drunk Americans who went in there and didn't follow the rules. And the reason I don't necessarily think it's racism is because after I started learning to speak Japanese and I would try to go into these places and I talk to them, they go, oh, okay, you're okay. We'll let you in because, you know, I was adjusting and they could see I was well-mannered and well-behaved. So maybe that's it. Maybe that negative feeling that they get around the close vicinity of the base caused some of that. I'm not sure though. I, that's just a guess. Yeah. yeah. I can see how, if there had been some um, encounters in the past that maybe the response was to kind of just try to put up those barriers between people. It's unfortunate, but it's definitely understandable. Yeah. And then, you know, to draw the conclusion that they don't like us and I see it as the op, I see it as a challenge because I mean, I've changed people here just by them getting to know me and showing my humanity and, and me seeing their humanity. It's amazing, you know, and you can't change all of Japan but you can change people one by one, you know, as you meet them and you can win them over just by becoming friends and doing kind things for them. Just not, I, I guess the way I look at it, and actually this is what I do in my seminars. I let people know what the negative stereotypes are that the Japanese have toward us. And then I tell them, do the opposite. Don't fall into those stereotypes, show them that you are not the American who never apologizes and who doesn't follow protocol, you know, do the opposite. Show them that you uh, took the time to learn about their culture and uh, adjust to their ways, right? Yeah, that's great. So you've already kind of called yourself a little bit of an ambassador and you've described yourself to me in the past as a corporate <laughs> cross-cultural marriage counselor. Yeah. especially in your corporate trainings. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about what that means to you? Sure. And actually, that's my wife's term. She came up with it. Uh, you know, one day she just said, yeah, Tim, you're like a marriage counselor. You go in and actually, I'll tell you a story. So uh, this is about maybe 15, 16 years ago. I don't remember the exact date. But so I was working with the, a client and this was in the U.S., and uh, most of my clients were Japanese uh, subsidiaries who set up their companies in the US, right? So this was a really big major automaker. And I can't say who it is, but so this major automaker had a, a supplier development group and their job was to go out and find suppliers that were struggling for whatever reason and offer them resources to help them. And, you know, it could be they might be struggling with quality issues, in which case they would send their quality engineers to that supplier and help them improve their, their factory, their systems, things like that. And some of them were struggling uh, with the cross-cultural management issues between Japanese and Americans in, in their supplier, right, at their suppliers. So this client said to me, well, we have a, a, a supplier who's really struggling and we'd like to go down there with you. There was always a representative from the client. And uh, let's do a, diagno a diagnostic and see what's wrong with, with the, their, what their issues are. So we go and uh, I spent two days interviewing 
Japanese managers and American managers. And up until this point, I had been giving seminars, but they were always separate. Like I do a Japanese seminar only for Japanese or a, 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 an English seminar only for Americans. So I go there and uh, I interview everybody and I decide I can't help them, that the water, the well has been poisoned, that, that you know, they're too far gone. And I really was very discouraged by it. So I tell the Japanese president of this subsidiary, I'm so sorry, I can't help you. And he says, Tim-san, you have to help us. Please do something. The client company representative said the same thing. Okay, so basically the president of the subsidiary, I'll repeat it, you know, said, Tim, son, you got to help us, right? I said, give me some time. Uh, let me go think about it. So I, I spent the weekend home at home and uh, I was just kind of mulling over. I was probably drinking a beer when I was doing it. Uh, what I could do to help. Him. And I started thinking about when I was working in the uh manufacturing industry as a Kaizen consultant. And the, one of the key things that we did to figure out what our problems were is we had a Hanseikai, a reflection meeting. And I thought, okay, so the end goal, if I'm going to do this training, is to get both sides to stop pointing fingers and instead reflect on what they themselves, where they're falling short in communicating and cooperating with their counterparts. So that was like, that became my, the end goal of the whole training exercise. So here's what I came up with. I said, give me the Japanese for a day. Give me the Americans for a day. And then give me a half a day with them together. So this was something I had never done before. And, uh, and what I did was, so the first day with the Japanese, before I got into the training, I said, okay, break down into groups. And again, this is only Japanese. And I said, I want you to make two lists. The first list is, what are the things that you like that are really easy about working with your American counterparts? And then the other list is, what are the difficulties of working with your American counterparts? And then I, I, I use these lists and I kind of weave it into the seminar. I, I do a lot of ad-libbing to relate to a lot of the points that I'm going to make as I get into the seminar. But in this case, I said, okay, I'm going to take this list and I'm going to translate it into English. And in two days, we're going to do a joint seminar. So I'm going to show your American counterparts what you said about them, positive and you know, challenges. And uh, I tried, I didn't use the word negative. And then the next day I did the same thing for the Americans. I said, make a list of what you, you know, like what's easy about working with the Japanese and, and your challenges. What are the difficulties? And I told them the same thing. I'm going to translate it into Japanese. Tomorrow we're going to get together. I'm going to show both sides what the other side is saying, and we're going to talk about it. And, uh, I was terrified because I had never done this before. And I didn't know how people were, were going to react, you know, to what the other side was saying about them. And of course, there were no names attached. It was just as a group, they made these lists, right? So I, I went into this, I was super nervous. And that part of the seminar was my favorite. I mean, it, it was, it really turned out to be very fruitful and actually quite fun. And I always like to inject as much as possible humor into these discussions, because once you can get both sides to laugh together, you're halfway home. You've, you've humanized each other and it becomes much easier to connect, right? And, you know, the typical example comes up in these seminars would be, for example, the Americans say uh, the Japanese have secret meetings and they, you know, they don't involve us because they don't trust us Americans. And, and the Japanese, 
you know, I, I try to give them context to the Americans and say, no, the Japanese have these meetings in Japan as well. It's not because you're Americans. They do things behind the scenes. And of course, I explain why. So once the Americans know that it's not because they're Americans, it's just because that's how they do it, that kind of relieves some of the tension, right? And, and kind of explodes their false assumption on, on what their motives are, right? And the Japanese will answer, oh no, you know, we're, we're really sorry. We, this is just how we do it. And the reason we don't invite you is because we have these meetings in Japanese and we don't speak very good English and you guys don't speak Japanese. And, you know, they, they explain why they do it, right? And the Japanese will typically say something like, uh, Americans just take action without understanding the problem. And the Americans will say, wow, give me an example of what you mean. And the Japanese will say, okay, well, when we had a problem on XYZ line, you guys went out there and just started doing trial and error, trying to figure out what, what's going to work. And they said, that's not root cause analysis. And the Americans say, well, you're just trying to force the Japanese way onto us. And the Japanese say, we learned that approach from Deming, who's an American. So we're not trying to force anything on you. We wish you would follow Mr. Deming's method of, you know, plan, do, check, act, and, you know, ask the five whys until you get to the root cause of the problem. And then the, now the Americans feel like, oh, okay, well, they weren't just forcing their way on us. And of course they do sometimes do force their way, but in this case, not. So, and then, you know, they have this discussion and, and, and I was kind of the guy in the middle, you know, helping them and, you know, interpreting. So they, so I knew that they were communicating. And then after a couple hours of going back, taking turns, asking each other questions and clarifying things, because, you know, 80% of it is misunderstanding, you know, and 20% of it is legitimate differences, right? So after they talk everything out, then I say, okay, well, we're going to go into the final phase of this seminar. And it's what the Japanese call the Hanseikai. And the Hanseikai is reflection, self-reflection. And the Japanese believe that, you know, you can't improve unless you reflect first on what your own shortcomings are, or in this case, as a group, what your shortcomings are. And uh, so we're going to stay separate. Japanese Americans are going to be separate, but we're going to break into small groups. And based on what you learned over the last couple of days in today's discussion, I want each side to make a list of reflection points. Where do you believe you're falling short in, you know, promoting communication and cooperation with the other side? And I, I give them these big sheets of paper, right? And I fold it in half. I go on the left side are your reflection points. And on the right side, are what are you going to do about it? What commitment are you going to make to the other side to improve that shortcoming? And the Americans would say things like, you're right, we don't do root cause analysis. And this is, uh, you know, we admit that, you know, we need to get better. And as a uh, corrective action, we would like to propose that you work with us and train us and we work as one team to make sure that we're doing it the proper way and we don't want to be working separately like we've been working so far we want to be one team and of course that's music to the japanese ears because they they love that you know the harmony and working together as one team and the japanese might say yes we do have a lot of meetings in japanese and it's after work and, you know, of course, you're welcome to join us, but, you know, we'd have to have an interpreter there. And many of you want to go home to your families at night. We understand that. So how about we take notes of, uh, of the key points and summarize our meetings, and then we'll have an interpreter, a translator, translate it. Uh, and then in the morning, we'll give you the notes of the meeting. You know, things like that. They, they offer to meet the other side halfway. Well... The first time I did this, it was so successful. The, the, my client was so happy. I ended up doing, I, I lost count, but over a hundred of these, uh, over like a 16, 17 year period. So it was pro it's, it's a very difficult process because it's very intensive. You're, I'm always moving. You know, like even after the seminars for the first two days, 
I had to go back to my hotel at night and I had to translate everything, right? So I like I was like busy for two and a half days nonstop. But at the end, when everybody's smiling and they're all saying, "Yeah, let's go out and do drink together. Let's let's start socializing together." There's no better feeling, you know. You feel like you actually did something good, you know. So, so that was my. That's a, that, that's kind of a summary of my marriage counseling session. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, yeah. It struck me that the focus and what you were doing was so much stronger on the relationship aspect of business relationships, which is obviously a much more quote unquote Japanese approach to doing business. Right. As well, compared to Americans who tend to be more task oriented, more results oriented, I guess. So, yeah. did you ever face any pushback from Americans to that sort of approach, like some impatience, or were people overall really receptive to it? A lot of these seminars, in fact, most of them, people are required to go. So, a lot of people don't want to go. Like they show up reluctantly, and and. I'm speaking for the American side. I'm sure the Japanese are the same, but they just don't tell you, right? They just show up because they're, they were told and they do their best. But the Americans are more vocal and some of them, uh, you can tell they don't wanna be there. But many have come up to me afterwards and said, you know what? I've been working with the Japanese for 20 years, but I'm really glad I came to this. I didn't wanna come, but you kind of showed me a lot of blind spots that I had and uh, I think a lot of it is because I don't just talk about the what. Many of them know the what, they just don't know the why. And I, I relate it to deeper cultural things like, you know, Shinto, Buddhism, Confucianism, feudalism, rice culture, but I connect the dots to what's happening in the factory floor. In my case, I, I work mostly in factories. So many of them appreciate knowing the why you know, not just the what. So yeah, I, I, I really didn't uh, get too much once we got through it. And most of them enjoyed that last session a lot, you know, actually talking directly. Yeah, it sounds like a very special experience and definitely impactful, I'm sure as well. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit more about the Japanese concept of Hansei? Uh, you mentioned that it's like personal reflection and how it's, at least in Japanese thought, it's really essential for making improvements. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about that? Sure, sure. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I, my wife's Japanese, of course. And we, when we raised our kids, when my children were naughty, my wife would scold them and put them in their room. We, we, we never struck our children. We were, you know, but we disciplined them. And my wife would always say, and my kids are like four years old. She'd say, Hansei Shinasai, you know, go in your room and reflect, you know, and my son would be in there crying. And my wife would go back five minutes later and she'd say, Hansei Shitano, you know, did you reflect? And my son would say, Hansei Shita, right? And she'd say, well, you know, what are you going to do? And he goes, Mo Yaranai, I won't do it anymore. Of course, he's not reflecting, but already that idea of reflection before the children are even capable of it, that message is being, you know, that seed is being planted that, you know, you're supposed to truly reflect on what you do wrong. So in the business world, it's funny, whenever you have like a project, like for example, with an American company, let's say you have a project and it's wildly successful. Americans have a pizza party, right? The Japanese, no matter how successful it is, they have a Hansei Kai. I guess we would call it a post-mortem, right? They reflect on all the things they did wrong. It's very negative-oriented. That's really what Kaizen is, right? Um, maybe to a fault, you know, because when you try to introduce that into the American workforce, American you know, work culture, Americans kind of like to look at the positive side of things. And, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. And I always used to encourage people, I'd say, have a, have a Hansei Kai, a postmortem, and then have a pizza party, you know, try to, you know, combine the two. So um, I learned it mostly, you know, working with the Japanese, but I also worked uh, with a company called uh, Japan Management Association Consultants. And we went in and would do Kaizen, you know, continuous improvement in, in factories, mostly, mostly, but not all. Um, Japanese subsidiaries in the U.S. And uh, 
So in figuring out what we did wrong or what people were doing wrong or problems, we would often have these Hanseikai to figure out again, where the, you know, what's going wrong. And we would encourage people to critique themselves rather than us critiquing them, right? Because if we critique them, we're outsiders and people don't take critiques well from other people. But if you come up with it on your own, it's, it's easier to take, you know? And, and that idea of saying, wait, hey, we could do things better. That's really in the end what drives continuous improvement. You can't improve if you don't acknowledge your own weaknesses. So, and kind of an interesting point, when I did these joint sessions with Japanese Americans, once Americans are given permission to reflect and they understand that this is how things are done in, in typical Japanese companies, they're actually really good at it. And in, in fact, sometimes better than the Japanese in, in my observation, right? And I was, a lot of my work was done in the deep South. Of course, many Christians, right? A lot of people are devout Christians. And the way I would introduce it, I'd say, look, you guys know what Hansei is. You know, the Japanese say you can't do it, but I know they, they, they misunderstand. When you guys go to church on Sunday, what do you do? And they go, oh, we reflect. I go, yeah, well, let's bring that spirit to work with you. It's amazing how good the Americans were doing it. But you had to create that, the funiki, the, you know, the, the, you had to create that, you know, safe space. I hate to use that word, but where they can actually feel comfortable doing it. Yeah, that's very interesting to me, but definitely I can see how having people come up with what can be done better themselves leads to a lot more buy-in from people and actually making those improvements. It's interesting that you could see that Americans can be good at that sort of thing because I feel like that is a muscle that we're encouraged not to develop because we're supposed yeah. to kind of put on our best face. We're supposed to sell our best points. We're supposed to fake it till you make it. And uh, it's kind of a footnote that you're, oh, also be self-aware of where you fall short in certain areas, but really just focus on how amazing you are and making sure everybody knows that. Right. And it's still, <laughs> I know, and, and we still have that tendency to, to be honest, I didn't know we could do it until I tried it. So I, I kind of stumbled into it. And the way I softened it was, I didn't ask people to do it as individuals. I asked them to do it as groups. And it's much easier saying, we as a group are falling short here than someone saying, I as an individual am falling short here, right? So I kept all those activities in groups and I think it made it somewhat easier. Yeah, that's very interesting. Hopefully like Kaizen kind of worked its way into worldwide business culture, hopefully Hansei can yeah, <laughs> to some right. extent as well. That would be great. So can you share a little bit about what you think the role of storytelling in teaching and in learning languages and culture is? You know, I come from a long line of storytellers. Everyone in my family tells stories. My parents were both good at it. And uh, so I think it's kind of in my DNA. And I think I started becoming aware of the value of storytelling when I was studying cultural anthropology in college. And I was asked to read a book called Japanese Patterns of Behavior. And uh, I think her name was something Sugiyama Libra. She, she was a Japanese woman married to a, an American and she was a professor at University of Hawaii. And uh, at this time, I had been in Japan like four or five years. And uh, so I, I had to read the book. And on the one hand, I read it and it was extremely enlightening. I mean, I'm reading it and the light bulbs are going on because there were so many, having been in Japan all those years, I was observing all these things that in my mind were contradictions. You know, how can the Japanese be so polite? when they deal with you in their home and then they go on the train and they're all maniacs you know, running for their seat. You know, I saw all these like things. I couldn't put them together in my mind. They, they seemed like contradictions. So I read the book and it just clarified everything. Right. So that's the positive of the book. 
The negative of the book is the writing style of these cultural anthropologists is so dry. It is so, it's like they're trying to come across as being scientific. And you wonder if they're talking about people or specimens, you know, and there was no storytelling in the story and in, in the book. And, you know, I'm thinking more people need to have access to this information, but the average person who needs it, unless they're not going to read this book, this is this book was written for academics, you know, inside the walls of cultural anthropology. But people outside those walls who are not academics really need this information. And the only way to make it accessible is rather than talking about theory, you know, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with theory. The theory is great, but you need to breathe life into theory. You know, if you're going to talk about the, the dimensions of culture, you can go through and theoretically talk about different cultures having different dimensions and here's where they fall on the on the spectrum but if you don't tell stories to bring alive those differences people aren't going to remember them it's just going to be this abstraction that floats in your head for a day and then boom it's gone right so my style of of doing seminars was designed to bring alive these cultural differences by telling stories because it engages people. People remember stories better. And in fact, um, there's a great book I read called The Storytelling Animal. Um, and the author basically says, the human brain evolved and is wired to remember stories. And one reason is long before humans invented writing, they had to pass down knowledge to the next generation. And the way they did that was through storytelling. So even today we have writing, we can record and document all this, but we still tell stories. That's why Hollywood movies are so popular. And that's why books are popular. We're just wired for stories, right? So when I do my seminars, I base it on stories and, you know, anecdotes about things that have happened to me personally or have happened to other people. And I always try to weave in, you know, a lesson into that, that little story, right? Or, or anecdote, right? And uh, I think it engages people. So people tend to, again, learn from it better than somebody who gets up there and dryly, you know, talks about do's and don'ts and theory, things like that. And as far as learning language, when I was in college, I was looking for a way to build vocabulary. And as you know, it's very, it takes a long time to learn how to read Japanese. So you're kind of handicapped. Uh, you know, if, if, if you were learning French, you could at least start reading books, right? And, and even if you don't know the word, you can look it up. And kanji is a lot more difficult to look up, right? So to hasten my process of absorbing vocabulary, my roommate at the time, he was a Japanese guy, turned me on to Rakugo, which is Japanese comic storytelling. And of course, it's very difficult. You have to be advanced. And so I started getting interested in Rakugo. And, uh, and this was, I was actually transitioning. I, I had met my wife and we were about to get married, right? And so another interest I had was uh, Japanese attitudes toward death versus Western attitudes toward death. So for my senior thesis at ICU, I decided to combine those two themes and, and my theme was death in Rakugo, like gallows humor in, in Japanese comic storytelling. And so I started, you know, at the time there was no internet, so it was all VHS, you know, we would record these Rakugo performances and I would go through with my wife, who of course is a native speaker. And again, it's very difficult right? It's not easy to, you know, you have to be pretty advanced. And, you know, we'd be listening to the story, everybody would laugh, I wouldn't understand why I'd stop it, I'd go back and listen again, I asked my wife to explain it. But after I'd go through these stories, three or four times, the vocabulary stuck in my head, not, you know, because you were learning these new words in context, within the context of a story, right. And so I found it extremely useful in terms of retaining information, which kind of backs up 
the guy who wrote the book, the storytelling animal, right? That's, it's easier to remember things in the context of a story. So that's one of the reasons why I try to bookend these interviews with stories a little bit, starting out with the story of the person. I've been a podcast junkie for a while and I noticed that if I didn't learn about the person in the beginning, that it was a lot less likely for me to remember them at the end of the podcast. We'll just put it that way. But then also I like having a story at the end, asking about examples of communication breakdowns, specific examples, because that way everybody at least has that story in their head by the end of it to carry with them. Well done. Yeah, I think that's a great thing. So like you said, Rakugo is quite difficult for lower level Japanese speakers. Are there any other ways of engaging with stories that you would recommend for people who have maybe a lower level of Japanese? You know, I wish I could tell you a link, but there is actually somebody who teaches Rakugo to beginner Japanese students I think it's on YouTube, uh, but I think if people Google it, I don't know what you would Google, maybe Japanese instruction, Rakugo, yeah. and it's these very short stories. And uh, it's explained in very slow, clear, simple Japanese. It's been a couple of years. I just stumbled across it when I was on YouTube looking for Rakugo and I, was, I thought it was interesting. But I think any story, uh, a lot of people, like, I'm amazed at the amount of uh, non-Japanese now who can speak Japanese really well. And a lot of them were motivated by anime. They were anime junkies, right? And they, and now with YouTube, you, there are just so many resources where you, you know, and even my, my wife used to teach Japanese in an American school. And she would actually watch anime with them and break it down and they were so engaged and interested in it that that was their motivation right um to, to learning it um so i think anime has a lot of because it's a story right mm-hmm. and it's visual so i would highly recommend that yeah and just a little plug while i'm thinking of it there's an extension that i use at least on netflix it's called language learning with netflix And that can be a good way for people to kind of convert (laughs) their watching into a reading experience. If that's something people are interested in, you can probably find it if you just look up language learning with Netflix. Have Uh, have you heard, have you heard of the show? It's a drama series called Shinya Shokudo, the midnight diner. It's on Netflix. mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I saw the first season. Yeah, I did. I, I love it, you know, because, and then, you know, I have the Japanese at the bottom, right? So if you can't quite hear what they said, you can read it and then, you know, it's easy to stop and look up words if they're new. So yeah, I just watched it. It was great. I'm pretty sure I wrote, sorry, these are all just gonna be things I'll put in the description for people who are listening. But I think I wrote an article with some recommendations on how to use language learning with Netflix and another extension called Bikai-kun to kind of find all these words and then look them up while you're watching. So you can either take things slow and translate things as you go, or just get that quick comprehension while you go along. So I'll be sure to link that up in the description as well. Sorry about the tangent. So do you have any other breakthrough moments with your Japanese learning adventure? I think, well, when I first came to Japan, this was 77, I had a, a series, I think, of key points. I don't, some of them were breakthrough, but the first was taking the bus from Haneda Airport to Atsugi Base and looking out the window and seeing everything written in Japanese. And, you know, suddenly I was rendered illiterate. You know, I'm 19 years old and so I can't read anything. I kind of panicked. And that became, that was like my first um, shock where I thought, you know what, I better at least learn survival Japanese because how am I going to, how am I going to live here if I can't read anything, you know? So that, I, I think that was the first shock. The first motivation for me was making friends. You make, and, and I was a young guy. So all the pretty Japanese ladies, I wanted to talk to them. I, you know, I was 19 years old. And uh, in fact, when, when I lived in Hawaii, we used to ha- host Japanese kids who didn't want to go to school. They call them toko. They were troubled kids. 
And we would put them into a local charter school that we had a partnership with. And they didn't have to study. We just wanted them to make friends so they would be motivated to learn English. And that it's amazing how strong that motivation was. So I think making friends became my motivation. But the psychological challenge for me at first, I, I had studied Russian, I had studied Spanish, but those languages are closer to English. And Russian was hard, though. Um, in fact, I think it was harder than Japanese. But the, the hard part for me with Japanese was the psychological barrier of the syntax, you know, where we have, you know, subject verb predicate in English. And in Japanese, it was all not quite backwards, but, you know, you know, like I olives like not. <laughs> I don't like olives, right? Um, it was really hard for my brain to get wrapped around that order of thinking. And it took quite a while. I like I it was just hanging out with Japanese people and just getting used to hearing it all the time before I there wasn't a single moment, but I eventually my brain just relaxed and was okay with it eventually, right? The other I think maybe the biggest challenge was conquering my fear of making a fool out of myself. I was shy about trying to speak Japanese and are they going to make fun of me? Will I, will I look stupid? And I'm not sure I, how I overcame it. I think I did when I had my first girlfriend who couldn't speak English. And we would sit there for hours with dictionaries, looking up words, trying to communicate just to just to talk to each other and connect with each other. And it was, it was, it was tough, but it was also, I was motivated. And I think my first year at Waseda was my breakthrough year. It's when I went from survival Japanese, you know, how much is the beer? Where do I buy the ticket? How much is it? Things like that to actually being able to carry on a conversation. And within a year, because I was going to school, I was hanging out with Japanese. I was completely immersed. I learned how to carry on a conversation. I think that was my my breakthrough year. And then uh, and then Rakugo was was a big breakthrough. And probably my last big breakthrough was when I was in the U.S. and I was a I, I had a new company. Uh, you know, I was consulting, mostly doing training, and I went to a potential client, and I said. Uh, you know, I, I was in this meeting and the, one of the Japanese said to me, can you do a training session to, for the Japanese in Japanese? And being the silly young man I was, I go, of course I can. And I had never done it before. And uh, so I go home and I'm like now worried. What did I commit to? Right. And uh, thankfully, I have my in-house native speaker, my wife. So I created the entire seminar in Japanese by myself but then i gave it to my wife and she pulled out her red pen and told me all the things i did wrong when said wrong and with her helping me i massaged it so it, i could do the seminar and then for like i still remember locking myself into a room and and giving the seminar to an, an imaginary audience in in, in japanese going through the seminar over like a five-day period every day over and over and over and after I did hundreds of these seminars, I, you know, I learned how to ad lib, to tell stories, to tell jokes, make them laugh. And it's just repetition. And, and yet I would still be nervous before I started. I'm like, is there enough Japanese in my brain for me to talk for four hours? And, and I always did, you know, but um, it took me a while, you know, to get to the point where I could ad lib, you know, and, uh, figure out what to say in the moment, right? Mm -hmm. So that was probably my, my uh, uh, those are the key breakthroughs. Yeah, and what you said early on about your brain kind of having to relax in order to master the syntax really resonated with me as well. When you're first learning a language, you're working so hard and depending on your personality, if you lean more perfectionistic or if you have a little bit of a fragile ego, 
I can claim that myself, then it can be difficult to let yourself go and let your idea of how language should work go as well. So if that's something you're still struggling with, it get it does get easier. <laughs> Just trust us on that. It does. It does. Yeah, I'm a bit of perfectionist. I like to plan, like no matter what I do. But then, I've what I've discovered about myself is, I never stick to the plan, like never. But that plan is my security blanket. It's like I have something to fall back on. But once I get in the flow, I'm fine. You know. And if I, for example, if I'm speaking Japanese all day, I get into this Japanese mode. And then when I try to speak English, it just comes out clunky and weird, you know? Um, and when I speak English all day, then my Japanese doesn't come out so smoothly, right? So it's, uh, it's just interesting how the human brain functions, you know? You get into that flow, right? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me as well. But before we kind of start wrapping things up, I was curious to hear more about what Rakugo taught you about Japanese culture specifically. As I started researching the roots of Rakugo, and by the way, um, I don't know when you're gonna put this seminar out, it'll probably be after, it'll probably be next week, but I'm actually doing a Rakugo room on Clubhouse with uh, Katsura Sunshine on Sunday at two o'clock, two o'clock Japan time, right? So we're going to talk about that. But so it's, I kind of got Rakugo on the mind uh, these last few days. As I started studying Rakugo, like a lot of people say, oh, Rakugo was born in the Edo period, which is, you know, Edo is old Tokyo, right? And, uh, you know, the 17th century is when Tokugawa united the country, right? And they got out of the Sengoku Jidai, where you had the warring, all the different warring states within Japan, right? But nothing historically just pops out of nowhere, right? History is a process. So I started digging into it and I found out that the Rakugo storytellers were descendants of type of, I guess you call it a profession called the Otogi Shu. And the Otogi Shu were like the right-hand man advisors of all these daimyo or the warlords and, or the shogun, you know, and they were learned men, more often than not, you know, quite often they were Buddhist priests. So they were, again, very learned, well-read, and they were also storytellers. Buddhist priests, you know, can do the osekyo, uh, you know, sermons, right? And they're very good at it, or they were, right? And I'm thinking, well, where did the Otogi Shu come from? And during the Muromachi period, this was following the Kamakura period, what happened was, Kamakura period, they built roads throughout Japan to connect all these prefectures, right? And literally all roads led to Kamakura, right? And this allowed more travel throughout Japan. And until then, Buddhism, which was imported from China, it was the elite, the ruling class that studied Buddhism. And now you got these, these storytellers, many of them are, are religious, traveling all over Japan and telling these stories to the common people. And this is how Buddhism spread from you know, the, the ruling class down to the, the regular folks. So the roots of the Otogishu was from these traveling jongleurs, you know, these storytellers. And interestingly, the, um, a, a lady named, a, a scholar named Barbara Roosh said, this is when the Japanese net a national literature was born in terms of, you know, these uniting themes that really talk about the, that show the values of the, of the culture and the people. And this was during the, you know, the Genpei Wars. And so their hero, the, the idea of what, what a hero was and things like that were really born during this time. And she uses a term that she coined called the cinemization of Japanese literature. And so you had these people, some of them, there were different types, you know, but some of them told stories with pictures, some using props. They often would have a shamisen to accompany their stories with music. And if you look at Rakugo, it's a very visual medium, okay? And, you know, in the U.S., our, our version is stand-up comedy, right? Rakugo is you kneel down, you know, you're not standing, but you tell these traditional stories and you have props, 
and you have these master storytellers and their props are basically the fan which can function as many different things it could be a, a pen it could be a fan it could be a lot of things right and the towel which could be a book you know it can it can function as all these different things within the story and the storyteller does all the characters so it's theater and if you listen to a really good Rakugo storyteller, it's almost like watching a movie inside your head. That's how good they are, right? And I saw this connection to the cinemization of Japanese literature that really started evolving in the Muromachi period. And we all talk about how the Japanese are very visual. And you can also, you could see it even as early as the 11th century where they were already you know, it, it, they were intent on visualizing things and showing them, even in their storytelling. So to me, that was a kind of an interesting connection to the past. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. No, it definitely did. Because I had learned a little bit about Nakugo just because I was studying Japanese in college, right. but <laughs> it's great to hear more. It's definitely, especially if you're looking for new means of learning more about Japanese culture or as Tim used in the past, using it to learn Japanese. Yeah, it's always good to learn about different possible resources or gateways into learning more about Japan. Yeah, but there's one more thing that I think is important of what I learned as more of a basic human level. When I came to Japan, I was 19. And probably because of the media, I had this stereotype of the Japanese as these humorless people who are like robots who march to work every day and they're never, they never, la you know, it's very naive on my part. And I just remember even before Lakugo being surprised at the great sense of humor that the Japanese had, which just exploded my stereotype of who they were, right? And Lakugo is, is a really good illustration of I think the Japanese sense of humor and the fact that I mentioned Katsura Sunshine, he was on Broadway doing Rakugo in English and it just warms my heart because he's showing the human side of the Japanese to the English speaking world, which I think is really, really important. So I consider him a kind of a hero, like an ambassador because he humanizes, you know, humor, humor humanizes people, right? And so I love what he's doing, and I, I, I can't wait till he gets back on Broadway. So I thought that I think it's really special what he's doing. Yeah, that is very special. And it connects to what you said early on in the conversation about kind of how connection requires humanization. If you can humanize Japanese people a little bit more <laughs> through humor, then it becomes a little bit easier to make connections in some ways with them as well. So having a more holistic view of Japanese culture is definitely an asset. Exactly. Can you give us an example of a communication breakdown that you've experienced due to cultural differences in Japan? I, I could give a few, but um, <laughs> one of the things that are often misunderstood is how the Japanese will introduce either a spouse or a family member and they will say, oh, you know, this is my wretched, no good wife, right? And I was actually at a, doing a seminar when this American said, you know, this Japanese guy, we, you know, he, he brought his wife to a, a company Christmas party and he was telling us all how fat his wife was. And I'm thinking, oh, this dude is sleeping on the couch tonight, but she didn't seem to mind. And he goes, and she wasn't fat. She was very attractive lady. Why would he say that about his wife, you know? And uh, I had to explain, well, you know, the, in Japan, it's actually a, a an expression of humility. They are a collectivist culture. And if someone is in their group, their inner group, it's improper to brag about them because the culture values humility. And if you brag about your wife, you're really bragging about yourself. So in a sense, he was putting himself down. And the wife will probably tell other people how about her wretched husband, you know, and how he's no good, or she'll put down her kids and, and they don't mean it all it's just part of the protocol and i explained this once at, a, at another seminar this was in hawaii and uh, a japanese american lady came up to me afterwards and said i wish i knew that when i was growing up because all my friends who were caucasian 
their parents were always bragging about him and my mom was always putting me down. And now I understand why. Um, she goes, I kind of grew up with a complex, right? So this is a Japanese American who had to go through that her whole life, right? So that's one example that I think a lot of people misunderstand, you know, is that how many, how many examples do you want? <laughs> I think that's great. No, that's one that I'm up before, but I also think is pretty important because um, in the States, we tend to talk more about, I don't know, your hot wife or your amazing children. That's a little bit more common in the United States than it would be in Japan. So, yeah. It's a so great I, was one, I, I was once at a seminar and a Japanese asked me, why do Americans say my lovely wife? And I said, as a joke, I just said, because we have to. And I thought they were going to laugh and the Japanese took me seriously. Oh, American <laughs> lady, very scary. Like they're taking notes, you know? So, uh, yeah. That's not yeah. completely wrong though. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. if you were speaking to somebody who is going to Japan for business um, and you only had time to teach them one thing about the country or its culture ahead of time, I know that's a little bit of a, a tough ask, but what do you think that one thing should be? Can I give you two answers? Because my first one doesn't really answer yours. Okay, that's okay. okay. I'll allow it. The first thing I would tell you is something that a professor in college taught me. I took a class on culture, thinking it was going to be about Japanese culture. And I show up the first day and he says it's going to be about American culture. So I'm disappointed. I sit through the class politely. I approach the professor after the class. I go, look, there's been a misunderstanding. I thought this class was going to be about Japanese culture, not American culture. So I'm going to drop the class because, I mean, I'm an American after all. Why, why should I study American culture? And he gave me a piece of advice that stuck with me. He said, if you really want to learn about other cultures, you have to learn about your own culture first. And so I highly recommend you take this class. And I took it. And it was one of the most humbling experiences ever because that's when I that's when I realized that for the previous four years in Japan, I had been unconsciously projecting my own values with good intentions onto the Japanese and all these values that as an American, we hold near and dear to our heart, right? We value the truth. And if that means confronting people, that's okay because the truth is important, right? And fairness and, and equality and all these things we value. I was just unconsciously assuming that my Japanese counterparts valued all this. So it was a, it was a real, it, it, it was a very enlightening thing, class to learn about my own culture. And what it does is it makes you more mindful, not only of Japanese culture, but of people from any culture that you meet. And it helps you not assume unconsciously. So that's kind of general information. Okay. And in terms of Japan specifically, I would tell people, you know, learn about the culture, but don't try to be Japanese. Don't act Japanese because you won't be authentic. You have to try to find what I, this is my term, your cross-cultural sweet spot where you remain an authentic person, but adjust enough to accommodate your guests and to show them that you care. And everyone has a different sweet spot, you know? So the example I'll give you is, we talked about bragging about your spouse, right? Okay, so here's my sweet spot. I'm never gonna put my wife down. I, I just won't do it. It's not part of who I am. But I don't brag about her either, you know? And, and sometimes, I will jokingly put her down and my kids down, but it's obvious I'm joking. And the Japanese think it's funny because they don't expect me, the American, to do that. And my kids are in on it. I'll say, this is my no good son. And my son will say, yes, I'm no good, you know. So it's kind of our little game that we play. And so the Japanese know I understand that what they do, but they also know that I've kind of got my tongue in my cheek. And, and again, that's just me personally, right? Um, one example. So... Again, you know, if you try to be too Japanese, you're going to creep them out. Um, be authentic and, uh, you know, just try to make that adjustment as mm -hmm. best you can. Yeah, both of those are great. Learning about American culture sounds like a very important thing because, at least in my experience as an English teacher, people are like, oh, then teach me American culture. And I'm like, 
I can't do that because I don't really understand American <laughs> culture because I haven't really learned about it. So yeah, having that asset of really understanding your own culture is very important. I've been able to learn how to re reverse engineer some things through what I've learned in Japan and Korea, like some differences between us and the culture over there. But right. having a little bit more of a straightforward education in the area would definitely be helpful, I think. Yeah, it really helps going out of your culture to learn it. And you know, the what's the old joke? One fish says to the other fish, how's the water? And the other fish says, what the hell is water? Yeah. And our culture is the water we're swimming in. Unless you pull us out of our pond and put us in another pond, we're not going to realize that what's you know our own values around us. You just you don't see them. They're they're just atarimaya. They're just taken for granted, right? So mm, definitely for sure. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Is there anything that we didn't get to cover, or anything you wanted to mention before we sign off for today? No, I. I I think we covered a lot. Thank you. It was nice talking to you. I'm, I'm glad we uh, had this conversation. And uh, hopefully I'll see you on Clubhouse more. I hope you get used to it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll do my best. And <laughs> anyone who's listening who's not already on Clubhouse, be sure to reach out to me to get an invitation and I will send that to you as well. But in right the meantime, on. thanks so much for your time today. Very good. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time to discuss this. hope that you enjoyed today's conversation and please be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode to learn more about Tim and also be sure to check out all of the awesome conversations he facilitates and participates in on Clubhouse. If you enjoyed today's conversation, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the messages and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe and leave a rating and review if you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. Also, be sure to reach out if you would like to contribute as a guest in the podcast to share your own cultural insights and doing business in Japan. If you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find the link to do so in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo. Mm -hmm.